Hey guys, Robert Gowan here. On this episode, I'm excited to bring somebody that I've been following for a period of time. She's recognized as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. Whitney Johnson is an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption, specifically a framework which she codifies in the critically acclaimed book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. And in her latest book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths, and lead them up the learning curve. She is also the author of Dare, Dream, Do, Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream. She developed her proprietary framework and diagnostics after having co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. This framework is complemented by a deep understanding of how executives create and destroy value. Having spent nearly a decade as an institutional investor, rank equity analyst on Wall Street. You're going to enjoy this episode and get so much from it. Make sure you take out your, your paper and your pen and get ready to take some really great notes. If you haven't had a chance to already check out our team page out on our Facebook, please do so by searching Mentors the Number 4 MIL and go out there and look for our groups and then join the team room. Also, be sure to check out our sponsor at SkeletonOptics.com. You can use our code Mentors the Number Four MIL and receive a discount right at checkout. Again, that's SkeletonOptics.com to look at all the amazing sunglasses that they have there, including ballistic pairs, and use the code Mentors the Number Four MIL. All right, at this time, sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. If you are willing to create an ecosystem where people can disrupt themselves, you're able to build an A-team and you're able to build a team that is going to be innovative because you continually have people learning. And when you're learning, um, you're engaged. And when you're engaged, you're in a situation where you can innovate. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Whitney, first off, I am really honored to have you on this show. I've, I've been following you for a period of time, and we'll get into it in just a moment about uh, some of the things that you're going to be doing here upcoming in the future and some of the events, one of which I attended several years ago. And, uh, of course, finding out that you're going to be attending that event and speaking that, it's pretty exciting, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. But I think it might be helpful since many of the audience who might be listening might say, okay, who is Whitney Johnson? What is her background? And so it might be great to maybe start with a little bit about your background and sure okay so um uh, yeah i will just go ahead and um, tell you a little bit about myself if you want me to get longer shorter at any point just you go let for me it know. yeah so i um i graduated um in music from college Grew up in a very middle-class family in California in the United States and um, didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I, I studied music, but I you know, went to college and I was going to do that. And then I had some vague notion of what I was going to do when I grew up, but I really didn't have any yeah. real idea at all. Do, does any and of us until we get about 30 I, or 40? I, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think we like to think that we do. And yeah. I, I wonder if maybe sometimes when people go into the military, maybe some of the reasons that they go into the military, I don't know, I'm just speculating, is 
that we don't really quite totally. know what we want to do. And so I was, you know, I was a person who graduated. Um, I actually didn't graduate till I was 27 years old because okay. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of playing and, you know, I, I left for two years to go on a mission for my church, but really kind of very, not even kind of, very rudderless. Um, but then this magical thing happened, which is I got married. And, you know, sometimes people talk about marriage, especially for women, as this thing that's like entrapping you and you will lose your identity. But for me, <laughs> getting married really grounded me in a very, um, very powerful way. And I think that really helped me start, okay, now what do I want to do? Sure. And so I graduated from college. My husband and I moved to New York and he was getting his PhD at Columbia University and, and we had to put food on the table. He was studying. So it was like, okay, I'm up, go out and find a job. Um, the problem for me was, is that I was a music major. I had not gone to Harvard and I was a female and it was the late eighties. And so the job that I got was as a sales assistant, which is basically a secretary working for a stockbroker. Right. So I go to work every day. Um, and one of the things that happened for me that was very powerful is that I had a bunch of guys sitting across from me because they were all men. I was a, a female, you know, with the line with the secretaries and trying to open up these accounts and getting people to, you know, open up the accounts by saying things like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this is a good investment and throw down your pom-poms and get in the game and initially I was really offended by that because I was a cheerleader in high school but then I kind of had this epiphany where I thought you know what I need to throw down my pom-poms like I need to throw them down and I need to get in the game and stop sitting on the sidelines and that was really when I started taking business courses at night and eventually was able to move from being a secretary to an investment banker and I think maybe I don't know, I'm going to throw out all these analogies and you could tell me if I'm totally off base, but it's kind of like going from being an enlisted person to an officer. Like it just, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I was able to work my way up. Um, then there was, um, so I did investment banking. Then I took a step back to become an equity research analyst. And I took that step back in the sense that you don't move from being a banker to an analyst. It's like going from flying a fighter jet to a cargo plane. So I had to do it because there was a, there was a merger, there was a shake up, my boss was fired and I was pregnant. So I got moved. Actually, I got shoved into equity research. But here's the magical thing. It turned out to be a career maker for me. I, I was very, very good at building financial models. I was very, very good at stock picking. I did that for eight years. I was institutional investor ranked analyst. We had our two children. And then I disrupted myself in 2005, left Wall Street, um, wanted to become an entrepreneur, did that for a couple of years, and then connected with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, who wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. He's really the father of this idea of disruptive innovation, co-founded an investment firm with him, did that for about five years, and then five years ago now, I sold my stake. And because I had this big aha that this whole theory of disruption, and we could talk more about that in a minute, um, didn't just apply to products, it also applied to people. And it helped me really understand what I had been doing throughout my life on sometimes I had been a disruptor when I was a secretary, there are times when I had disrupted myself. When I left Wall Street, I had been disrupted when I moved from banking to equity research, but it really gave me this framework to understand these, not only this isn't just about products, but it's also about people. And it helped me understand the career moves that I had made um, and really gave me a structure for understanding those. And so over the last five years, I've been researching and codifying this whole theory of personal disruption so that whether you're trying to scale an organization, build a team, trying to figure out what you're going to do when you leave the military, you've got a structure to do it. Love it. 
Oh, my God. So you're so right in the fact that a lot of people, especially within the same company, I think it's rather unique. I think you'd agree with me for somebody to move up basically from the mailroom and go all the way up to the type of role that you were in. Uh, and a lot of people have to leave in order to be recognized and then come back to an organization before they're they're seen within that level, if you know what I mean. Yes, it happens all the time. We we can't because people once we work with them they become like wallpaper to us and so we yeah. we have this picture of them in our mind and we 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 really struggle to let them change. We do it with our children too, by the way. Oh, totally. Well, there's so much <laughs> on parenting that, I mean, you can apply so much from the parenting side of it to the um, leadership or management. You know, you if you end up becoming a parent, then you'll find that a lot of the things that apply in the household, uh, they do tend to work and cross over quite a bit. You know, when you talk about disruption, I know we're going to get really into this in just a second, but the way you were describing it started making me think a lot of the book, um, Who Moved My Cheese?, and mm. and so it's sort of like you know either I'm moving your cheese in terms of disrupting your lifestyle, or um, you're moving my cheese and you're disrupting my basic things. And of course, I've mentioned this on the podcast, but for those who've never read that book, uh, it's it's really about these mice that are going through a maze and they continuously go to the same place every time until someday uh, or one day that the cheese is no longer there and it's been moved, or some of the mice continuously go there. Some of them decide to go and venture out and find where the cheese has moved to. And it continues on like that. Uh, and, and what it's all about is that you've got to be looking for the next horizon. You've got to be looking for what's going on. You've got to be soul searching introspectively into your passion. And uh, in some cases, somebody moves the, moves the cheese. And in some cases, you might be the person that moves somebody else's cheese. Sounds very much like it. You can and tell me if I'm off. Yeah. Right. Well, sometimes with disruption, you move your own cheese, right? right. You realize that you've got to move your own cheese. I think that's, um, yeah. So sometimes you're disrupted, and but sometimes you disrupt yourself, and that's when you move your own cheese. In some cases, it's the best thing that you could ever do, because I think each of us have also probably taken a step back at some point within our career. We disrupted ourselves in that way so that we can move forward. We realized we had to take a step back or two steps back in some sense, whether it's uh, by title or by position or uh, something of that nature, especially out in the private sector in order to move forward. Um, so I like the way you're putting that, that you, you might end up having to look introspectively, look at your career and realize that at times you've got to disrupt. And I mean, totally disrupt, like move yourself back, move yourself into a totally different career field, whatever the case may be. Which is, again, I think really what happens when you leave the military. I mean, right? You're disrupting yourself. Absolutely. You're completely disrupting your entire way of life. Um, and so I think that takes... It takes a lot of, I mean, that's what I love about the structure is that you, even when you're choosing, it's still really hard to do to make that really big, massive upheaval in your life. And so um, part of the whole point of this framework that we're going to talk about in a minute is that you then give yourself this structure for, okay, I know it's time to make a change. I know I have to do it. I can feel it in my bones that I need to do it. And sometimes you're forced to do it, but sometimes we choose to do it. How do I do this effectively and, and make it so that I can reduce uncertainty as much as possible? Yeah. I guess it comes down to choice as well, Whitney, then with whether you take it as a positive or a negative, that disruption and how you look on it uh, and move forward through it, I guess. 
Yes, I I completely agree, Scott. So um, I, I really think that whether we see any experience as a failure or success is a choice. Um, there's a quote that I really love. It's from John Milton, and he wrote Paradise Lost. And he says, the mind is its own place and can make of every heaven a hell and of every hell a heaven. And then I, I paraphrase it and say, you know, the mind is its own place and can make of every success a failure, of every failure success. And I think it's the same when we make a change. You know, how do we want to view it and, and it really is, as you just said, a choice. Before you wrote the book Building an A Team, you wrote the book Disrupt Yourself. And within that, you use something that has used, as you mentioned early on, uh, in terms of building a new product or uh, a, you know something within the manufacturing that you're looking at and, and modifying or something of that nature. And I believe, if I understand it correctly, it goes all the way back to 1962 in the use of the S-curve, which you applied within Disrupt Yourself, a, a book that we've been talking a lot about in terms of disruption. Maybe you could share a little, little bit about the S-curve, especially in, in a quote that you have I found on your website where you say um, that we're living in an era of accelerating disruption and how managing the S-curve waves of learning and mastering is a requisite skill. So what do you mean by the S-curve and why is that so important? <laughs> yeah, so um, may, let me back up just a teeny bit just to make sure that I'm setting the, the groundwork. So I've been using this word disruptive innovation a lot and I just want to make sure that um, all of your listeners are are clear on how I'm using that term because for a lot of people listening, they're going to be like, oh, I disrupted in class. I mm -hmm. got sent to the principal's <laughs> office and that's not what I'm talking about. Not at all. Um, yeah. So we probably have a lot of disruptors who are listening today. But um, so a disruptive innovation is basically a silly little thing that takes over the world. You think about the telephone disrupted the telegraph, um, the light bulb disrupted the gas lamp, the automobile, the horse and buggy, and then you have more recently things like Toyota disrupting General Motors, Netflix disrupting Blockbuster, and Uber disrupting um, everything. Uh, everything, the cabs, et cetera. <laughs> and so, um, so that's what it, it looks like is that you've got this silly little thing. It starts at the low end of the market. Everybody dismisses it like Toyota in the sixties. No one thought anything of it. General mm -hmm. Motors certainly did not. And they were just like, let's go after bigger and faster and better and like produce this Cadillac. The bad news for them, of course, was that Toyota was also motivated to go after bigger, faster and better. And they produced the Lexus and, and so it goes. And so, Personal disruption is how you take that idea and make that meaningful to you. The one big difference is that with personal disruption, you're both Toyota and General Motors, you're Netflix and Blockbuster, you're the silly little thing and the incumbent. And you you do that, you disrupt yourself so that you can take over maybe not the world, but take over your world. So that's what disruption is. And really now, so people have that idea in their mind is this like game of shoots and ladders and you're playing that on your own. Now, let's talk about the S-curve that you just mentioned a moment ago. It was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962. He used it to help figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted um, and what it is. So if everybody who's listening, just picture in your mind this S, kind of an elongated S that looks like a wave. At the base of an S, the growth is slow of any new product. And then once a tipping point is reached or the knee of that curve, and it's typically 5 to 10, maybe 15% of a market, you enter hyper growth. So that's steep part of the S. And then at 90% or saturation, the growth it tapers off. The big aha for me was that this whole S-curve that we were applying to innovations could help what seemed like it was unpredictable, predictable, and it could help us understand learning. It could help us understand 
the process of what things look like when we make a change. So whenever you start something new, you start a new role, you start a new job, you're at the bottom of the S. And so growth is going to be slow, you're it's going to feel like a slog, you're inexperienced. And why that's so important is that it helps you not be discouraged. Because you're like, this is what it's supposed to look like. The math says it's supposed to look like this. So I may be coming home from work every day um, or I've just left the military and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, that's mm-hmm. right. You're supposed to not know what you're doing because there's this jumble of pieces and you're trying to put them together. You're at the low end of the curve. But then you're going to put in the effort. And after six months, maybe a year, you're going to move to the knee of that curve and you're going to accelerate into the steep part of that S where you're feeling increasingly competent, you're feeling confident, and this is the exciting part of the curve where all your neurons are firing. And you can stay on that steep part of the S for one to three years and then you get to the top of the S. And this is now where it's flat. You're like, this is a mountain. This is a plateau. This is fantastic. I know everything. Well, yeah, you do, but because you're no longer learning, you get bored. Mm -hmm. And so if you get bored, um, your plateau can become a precipice. And so what do you have to do? You have to disrupt yourself, go to the bottom of the curve and start all over again. So you learn, you leap and you repeat. And I would, I would hazard a guess. I'm making it sound like I think I know so much about the military. So correct me anytime you want. Um, If I would say, you probably have seen this play out for yourself over and over again, is you're probably on any given learning curve three to four years. And then after those three or four years, you're at the top of the curve. You disrupt or you get disrupted. You move to a new role. You move to a new assignment and you start all over again. And so you've got this opportunity within the military. It's basically institutionalized or systemic for you to get to jump to new curves over and over again. And so once you leave the military, then you're at the bottom of a curve. You've got to climb it. And you get to start all over again. But this time you probably have to do it more purposely um, on your own at, at, because it's not institutionalized or, or systematic for you within within the confines of the military. I think that would be partly true in that um, in many cases, both in the military and the civilian, but I'll start with the military side of it, you may change an installation, but you may still carry the same skill set that you had previously, but it's a new location, a new destination, a new command or something of that nature. So in that sense, you may be somewhere between the 15 and the 90%. So you're, you're, you have some knowledge, you just need to gain, okay, what's the culture of this organization, uh, the nuances, the, the, uh, the things that are going to be most challenging, but my job is still my job. It's still the same skill I came into. Now, all of a sudden, the military decides to throw a curveball and they put you into something like drill sergeant or you end up applying for a recruiting duty or you get sent off and you apply for something like special operations or something of that nature. You're certainly going to the bottom all over again to describe that. In the private sector, I think it's somewhat of the same way. If you, As long as you shift within the same career, But it's when you start looking introspectively and you decide that, hey, listen, I've plateaued at this career field altogether. I just don't find it challenging or I've seen things that I don't want to continue going through. Maybe I just need to disrupt myself and start all over again. Yeah, right. Well, I can see this playing out in so many different ways as well, like uh, people listening may be into weightlifting or into um, things of uh, physical conditioning. 
And when you were describing this thing, I could see people who are kind of beginning off and they don't see as the, the results that they're expecting. But after a while, their muscles start learning and understanding uh, what it is that you're trying to do. And at some point, you're going to see growth and everything. But if you continue doing the same things, you're going to plateau. So you got to disrupt your muscles. And that's why they change. They'll, uh, instructors typically ha- ask you to, to change uh, how you're working out. So instead of working out in a specific way for this muscle group, we're going to change your muscles and shock them and let them uh, learn a new way which is going to challenge them and have you grow again and you've got to continuously do that so what you're saying is if you apply that same kind of yeah and if you apply that same fundamental to your own lifestyle and the things that you're doing uh, especially in your career base uh, I I can definitely see how that's going to be you know helpful Mm -hmm. when you're looking at the seven levers I understood that there are seven le- seven levers that are so important to understand. So maybe you kind of go through each of those seven levers for us and, and describe sure. why that's so sure. important. Um, but prior, prior to doing that, maybe it'll be helpful for you to explain why it is that you went from disrupt yourself into building an A-team. Yeah. So, um, so I wrote Disrupt Yourself. That's a book for you. So how do you know when it's time to make a change? And then once you make that change, you can do it effectively. And then we'll talk just a minute about the seven levers of, of moving up a learning curve effectively. The reason I wrote Build an A-Team is that after I'd written Disrupt Yourself, I had a lot of people say to me, okay, I got it. I, I want to disrupt myself and now I know how, but how do I get my boss to let me disrupt myself? Or how do I get the people around me um, who are who work for me to disrupt themselves? In other words, how do I create an ecosystem where disruption is possible? And what, <clears throat> what was really fun about that is my starting place wasn't this, but the outcome of it was, okay, if you are willing to create an ecosystem where people can disrupt themselves, you're able to build an A-team and you're able to build a team that is um, going to be innovative because you continually have people learning. And when you're learning, um, you're engaged. And when you're engaged, you're in a situation where you can can, um, innovate. So that's how Build an A-Team came about. Okay. Um, In terms of the levers, I'll go through those really quickly. So there's seven levers that help you move up any given learning curve quickly. Number one is to take the right kinds of risk. We think a lot about taking on risk, um, but we tend to take on competitive risk. So competitive risk is where you see a job posting, you know there's a job because there's 10, 15, 20 other people applying for it. So you have to figure out, can I compete and win? So that's competitive risk. Market risk is you don't know if there's a job, but you can see that there's a problem that an organization needs to solve. And you're pretty confident that you've got the requisite skills to solve that problem, if you can persuade an organization to create that job, to create that opportunity, to create that market, then you're much more likely to get that job. And what we know from the theory of disruption is that when you pursue a disruptive course, which very much involves this idea of market versus competitive risk, um, your odds of success are six times higher and your revenue opportunity 20 times greater. So that's market risk or taking on the right kinds of risks. Number two is you play to your distinctive strengths. These are things that you do well that people around you do not. Um, It's very easy and I'll give you an example here is it's very easy if you've been if you're, for example, you've got a skill in, um, in marketing. If you're in a room of 20 other marketing people, well, that may be great that you're really good at marketing, 
but not distinctive necessarily because there's 19 other marketers in the room. But if you can take your skill as a marketer and put yourself in a situation where there are 19 people who are accountants, then suddenly your strength's not only a strength, but it's a distinctive strength. And when you're able to tap into what you do well, what you do uniquely well, you feel strong. And when you feel strong, you're willing to play where no one else is playing, which is this idea of taking on market risk. So those both set the foundation for your ability to move move up a learning curve quickly. The third is to embrace your constraints. There's a sense of if only I had more time, if only I had more money, if I only had more expertise, then I could climb this learning curve. But what we know from the law of physics is that we actually need friction to climb a curve. There's this wonderful um, anecdote about uh, Steven Spielberg in the film Jaws. He um, he wanted to shoot the shoot the scenes. He had this big mechanical shark that he wanted to use for the film, but mm-hmm. it turns out that the mechanical shark didn't work. So he got himself in this situation where he's completely over budget. He's completely behind schedule, and so he shoots the shoots all the scenes from the shark's point of view because now he doesn't need the mechanical shark, and he wanted to let the music and everybody listening guaranteed you can hear that music in your head mm-hmm. and our imagination do the rest. So for for Steven Spielberg, you have to ask yourself, were the constraints, um, was he successful in spite of or was he successful because of the constraints? And so as you're thinking about climbing a learning curve, you want to consider the fact that your constraints are not a check on your freedom. They're actually a tool of creation for you. What you don't have enough of is going to turn out to be um, an asset for you if you will let it be an asset. So that's number three. Number four is battle entitlement. This is um, the more successful we are, the more we think we deserve our success. It, it come actually comes in many guises, and we could talk more about this if you want. But mm-hmm. it's right at that point on the learning curve where in, you're in the sweet spot. Everything's working. Everything's humming. And you've got the cognitive and emotional and even financial bandwidth to question like, could I be doing something differently? Maybe there's something else I'm missing, but instead we don't. We're just like, this is the way things will and should always be. And um, and and so, and because we start to do that, then we slide back down the curve because we stop asking ourselves, what could we do differently? What could we do better in order to continue the ascension up that curve? So that's number four. Number five is step back in order to grow. We've talked a little bit about this already, this idea that you... You crouch before you jump. You bring a fist back in order to punch. Um, if you will step back from your entitlement, if you're willing to step back in your career, if you're willing to step back to think about the big picture, um, frequently that step back can be a slingshot forward. Um, and personal disruption is all about stepping back sideways or down. Number six, give failure its due. We tend to think of failure as something that is really bad, and the reason we do is we attach shame to it. So it's not actually the failure or the making of a mistake that's the problem because you only actually learn when you're making mistakes. So you need to make mistakes. You need to iterate. It's it's the it's the shame that we attach to it. And so one of the things we have to do is figure out how to detach the shame from our making mistakes and then recognize that the up and the down are part of personal disruption. Um, I have lots of failures I could talk about. I won't today, but we all have failures. And the question is, what can we learn from them? And how do we strip shame um, out of the equation. And then finally, number seven is to be driven by discovery. Um, As a disruptor, you're trying to play where people aren't, you're trying to take a market risk, you're trying to find an, you know, unexplored, undefined market. And so you've got to be willing to, to explore. Um, You know, there's uh, Lewis and Clark, 
in the United States, Thomas Jefferson, he buys the, uh, makes the Louisiana purchase. He sends Lewis and Clark to figure out what he's acquired. And so they start in St. Louis, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, middle of the United States, heading for the Pacific Ocean with keelboats, these freight boats you use on rivers. Well, the Missouri River petered out, so they had to figure out an alternative plan. And what we learned from them is that with any S-curve that any of us are on, we have to be willing to alter our plan. So that's the, the that's being driven by discovery. So seven steps, take the right risks, play to your distinctive strengths, embrace your constraints, battle your entitlement, step back to grow, give failure its due, and at the top of the curve, the bottom of the curve, and everywhere in between, be driven by discovery. And when you'll do those things, you'll not only be able to jump to new curves, but you'll also be able to successfully climb your new curves. Whitney, do you think people who who master those seven steps um, become very good at disrupting themselves so an example could be Richard Branson for uh, for example so he's very good at going into complete different industries and different market sectors and completely disrupting himself so you know he's he's likely to have become skilled in those seven steps and then can make the disruption very easy for himself and, and therefore the confidence builds to be able to do that and the taking risks part of it becomes that little bit easier because you you you're capable and confident in taking that disruption and making it into a positive agreed um and it's absolutely a skill set that you can acquire you know what's it's interesting to me scott is on my disrupt yourself podcast about i don't know 50 interviews in i was doing this retrospective at looking at the people that i had interviewed and i noticed wow i am like really over indexing on immigrants like i have a lot of people that are first and second generation immigrants on my podcast like what up right (laughs) and i thought oh well that's because they learned how to disrupt, right? Yes. They put that exactly. they jumped to a new curve and they had to figure out what to do. Like you were just describing with Richard Branson, it's a skill set that they they may not have done it on purpose, and I'm not even sure he did initially because he was dysle- dyslexic as a child. He was forced mm. to take on market risk, figure out what his distinctive strengths were. But to your point, it is absolutely a skill set that. Some of us do it more naturally than others, but it is something that we can acquire. With the sense of entitlement, I want to go back to that because you, you kind of mentioned that as we were going down through it. And yeah, I do want to talk about that. Basically, because that's the area where a lot of people can hit that sweet spot. They get a little bit too overconfident, like you say, and then they feel like others owed them something. And I think that's the challenge that a, a lot of uh, folks that I run into today, especially coming off of transition out of the military, they're very much looking for what is what is somebody going to provide me? And in many cases, there are tons of nonprofits that are out there and available to them to offer them, whether it's building a resume, helping them find a job. There's even some places out there that'll help them buy a suit, fly them to the interviews, the whole gamut. And so it, what ends up happening is they don't have any, um, it's not their desire anymore to do something. It's just whatever you want to give me. And if you're willing to give me all these things, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And and I think that people then lose their passion or their purpose. And I could see that the same thing happening here. If you get a little bit too overconfident, you end up losing your purpose, your true north, your passion. Right. It's entitlement so interesting because it's not a matter of if we're entitled, it's just a matter of how we're entitled. I, I can imagine that there are some of us and actually not even some of us just depending on the day. Um, you know, entitlement can be when we don't get what we deserve. And at some point, I mean, 
I know this is a first world problem, but at some point we're not going to get something that we deserve, like, you know, a promotion, a raise, credit for a really good idea, and we don't get it, and it's not fair. And so we decide somehow that the universe is in our debt that we're owed. When we have that idea or mentality, we do slide back down the curve. But there's also when everything is going well and, you know, you've, you've been successful and you um, are, and, you know, your, your team is humming, you're, you're humming and you've got lots of people who say, you're a veteran, I'm going to give you this resource and that resource and the other resource. And yet when that happens, we um, start to think that we deserve that success. And when we think we deserve our success, then again, we start to slide back down that curve. And so it's really important for us to just say to ourselves, okay, okay, I know I'm entitled. I'm not sure how I'm entitled, but I know it's there because if someone's like, sometimes I'll have people say to me, well, I worked for everything that I had. I have, you know, I'm not entitled. I'm like, okay, maybe in that area you're not, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever in your life shown up late to a meeting? And the answer is, we all have. Mm -hmm. And when we show up late to a meeting, what are we doing? We're being entitled Mm because we're saying my time is more valuable than your time. And that's entitled. Because entitlement is saying my emotions, my time, whatever it is about me is more important and more valuable than yours. And um, the reverse of entitlement isn't not that I think you're more valuable than me. It's just I think you are valuable. I am valuable. We have to both see it that way. And that is how we start to to lick the sneaky, sneaky saboteur of any kind of innovation or any kind of climbing an S-curve in a meaningful way. We did a podcast here a few weeks back with uh, someone from uh, an organization. And and, uh, when we were talking to them, the focus of that that podcast and that episode was around be here now. You know, keep your focus right at the moment, live in the moment kind of thing. And I think that's where you're, you're kind of going as well in that I see a lot of people that come to meetings and they'll bring their cell phone or they'll arrive at dinner and they'll have their cell phone. And even they, the first thing they do is they put it out on the table and they set it down. And so that's supposed to mean that, you know, it's important uh, to them and possibly even more important to you because all of a sudden a phone may come in. They'll go, hold on just a second. Oh, it's nobody important or, or it's only John. I'll, I'll get to him later. So automatically you're, you're putting me down at that point at a lower level than the purpose of this meeting or whatever the case may be. So it's very interesting as you were running through that, I was thinking about those types of opportunities that sometime come up. Yeah. And it's, it's such a challenge. I mean, we do it all the time. We're constantly doing this pecking order in our brains. Is this person more important or less important? And one of the things that I, I think if you're thinking about an antidote to this, there are a couple of things we can do is, is every day, um, think of things that we're grateful for. And then another one that I think is really important. And actually it's interesting because Tom Peters, who came on my podcast and former military said, for example, we're on this podcast right now and therefore the most important person in the world or people in the world are you, Robert and you, Scott you're the most important people in the world. And right now I'm the most important person to you because that's who we're talking to. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that goes back to your idea of be, or the person you quoted of be here now. It's hard to do. Sometimes we're good at it, but it's hard. 
really hard. But it's a great way to battle our sense of entitlement. How do you deal then with the people who are very uncomfortable with change? You know, I run into so many people. As a matter of fact, I had subordinates that were coming to me at times and saying, you know, Robert, if you could just tell the leadership to stop the wheel from spinning and, you know, because they're, you know, I I just like to catch my breath or, uh, it, you know, it only took me a short period of time. But change is constant. And what you're describing here is that disrupting yourself, you're going to cause the change. Somebody disrupting you you're going to have to get comfortable with that. So how do you help them? Or has that question ever come up with somebody that says, how do I become comfortable with the uncomfortable? Absolutely. So I, I, the first thing I would say is that if you're uncomfortable with the change that's happening around you, then disrupt yourself. Because when we're willing to continually change ourselves, then the change that's happening outside of us is a lot less scary. We feel much more in control when we're continually saying, okay, I'm going to do what I can within my control to change myself. And that gives us a sense of self-efficacy that makes it so that the change that's happening external to us is much less daunting and overwhelming. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is when people come to you and say, I would really like things to slow down, I would um, recommend that you get really curious because what they're really saying to you is, I'm scared. That's what they're saying. I'm scared. Um, They'll never say it because adults don't want to ever admit they're scared. Only children do that, but they're scared. And so what you what you can do is say, okay, can you tell me a little bit more about this? What about the situation? You know, what would you like to slow down? Sometimes, you know, I'm saying usually it's scared. Sometimes they might just be, I'm a little bit tired. I need a vacation. Um, but, you know, usually when people say something like that, they're at the root of it, there's some type of fear. Of they won't be able to cope with it. They won't be able to manage it. And so the more you can be aware of what's happening and the more or you can help um, drive and facilitate their sense of self-efficacy, the less they're going to be frightened by the change that's happening external to them. Yeah. A lot of people like to feel in control. And and if they start feeling that oh, they're not in control. Do. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> we all do. And you also, you always know when you're feeling out of control, When at least for me, when I start micromanaging. Like oh, my kids are yeah. like, they'll be like, you're micro. Um, okay, that means I'm feeling out of control. What am I feeling out of control around, Right. <laughs> That that's that's just what we do, right? Witty, what about um, in in your book then the the cycle of learning leaping, uh, repeating? Yeah, in building a team. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all right. So we talked about this S curve, and so um, just as like every single person, like you're on an S curve, I'm on an S curve. We're all on an S curve or a learning curve. And what is interesting is we found in our research and as we're working across organizations that every organization is a collection of those learning curves. And you build an A-team, a team that can innovate, a team that can manage through change, again, this sense of self-efficacy, by having at any given time, you want 70% of your people, your workforce in that sweet spot of that curve, which is where they know enough um, that they can be effective, but not too much that they've gotten bored. You want 15% of your people the low end of the curve, they're inexperienced at that point. And so they're going to be a bit slow, but they're also, because they're inexperienced, because things aren't like wallpaper to them, going to be asking questions like, 
why do we do it like this? And those questions can sometimes be pesky, like a three-year-old. They sometimes can be threatening because they're saying, why do you do it like this? But if we're willing to just hold those questions and be aware of them, they're actually going to uncover really important, potentially important strategic um, insights and opportunities for innovation. And then you do want at any given time 15% of your people at the high end of the curve, but no more than that. You need them there because they can bring people up along the curve. They've got mm. this vantage point. They can mentor. They do have this perspective. Again, they're at the top of the mountain. Right. But if they stay there too long, what I said earlier is, is they get bored. And bored people leave um, uh, or they get complacent. And bored and complacent people that don't innovate, they get disrupted. So if you're as an organization saying, hmm, things have been going really well, like when are we going to be in trouble? Well, just take the pulse of your workforce because if you've got too many people at the high end of their curve, like 30%, 40%, then you start to be at risk. And so this is the idea of, okay, you let your people learn, you let them leap when they get to the top of the curve, and then you repeat it. And when you're willing to to honor that biology of change, honor the fact that every single person is a learning machine, you're going to um, have your people be engaged. And as your people are engaged, you're innovative and you, you lower your we're about to be disrupted score learning leaping repeating correct gotcha Whitney where do you think is the most dangerous part of the curve for with regards to a team at the lower part where people are starting to learn or at the top part where people have got the potential to get bored and and then look to disrupt themselves and move on um I would say at the top I think that's the most dangerous because I think at the bottom you have this sense of like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. We better get them training. Um, I think it's much easier where you get people at the top who are bored and they're kind of dialing it in and they're usually more expensive because they've been in that role for longer. And you can be at the top of the curve late in your career, but you can also be at the top of the curve early in your career. So it's not it's not sort of you can have a curve for your career, but you also have curves for your roles. And I do think you're, it's much more dangerous at the, at the top because people can be not doing very much and it's not quite as obvious. And so things really can start to slow down. And you can even have people who, if they don't want to jump and they're feeling kind of insecure, bully the people who are trying to move up the curve and yep. um, there's nothing you can do. So I, I do think it's more dangerous at the, at the top of the curve, though. Um, you know, there's obviously risks to the low end, but those are more apparent and, and usually more readily dealt with. Yeah, I, I guess you've got motivating factors as well at the lower end. So the, the learning aspect is often motivating to people to, to take on new roles or, or new aspects of a role. But exactly. Boredom is a killer, isn't it? I was going to yeah, say complacency really- is a killer. You just took my words yeah. right out of my mouth, Scott. That's just, <laughs> that's brilliant. Jinx, jinx. <laughs> Oh, my God. I could go on talking to you for hours, Whitney, and I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing more about Disrupt Yourself and Building an A-Team, the two books that you wrote. I do have a question. When people are looking for those two books, do you recommend that they first start with Disrupt Yourself, then go to Building an A-Team, or is there such a sequence? Can you go to part two before you read part one? Um. You know what? I, I know lots of people who have read Build an A-Team first, but if you, um, I, I would say if you 
I would recommend reading Disrupt Yourself first, if you mm-hmm. can. Read them as a pair, but I would start with Disrupt Yourself because Build an A Team, again, it's meant to stand alone and people do read it on its own all the time. But I think if you're really trying to figure out like, how do I do this for me? I would start with Disrupt Yourself and then you can expand of how do I do this with my team with Build an A Team. So I mentioned early on in the podcast that uh, you're going to be speaking at an event and that's the world of business ideas. And I had the opportunity many years ago about, well, I guess it was about probably six years ago now or so to attend that event in New York City at Radio City Music Hall. And I guess there's what, about 8,500 or so, you know, people typically between like director, executive level, CEOs, those types of things that come at this event. And there are speakers like yourself that come in and share great ideas. And even one of the sessions, I'll be totally honest, that I sat there in and I didn't think the speaker was going to present something that was of value to me. And I started tuning that person out and talking to the person next to me. And then all of a sudden, he said something that resonated. And from that point on, I thought he was one of the best speakers of this whole event. Um, So to find out that you're speaking at this thing is really exciting. And I encourage anybody that has the opportunity to go and hear you there. Uh, There's so much that you can gain from people like you. And you got, you know, people who are listening to this podcast got only a nugget of what you're going to share there. Well, thank you. Um, are you going to the event? I in won't November be this, this year. year. No, I oh, won't be. Okay. I, I really wish I would uh, was. And it's going to be in November, as I understand it, right? It, yeah, it, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, I encourage everybody to look that up. I'm not going to be able to be there, but I hope others will get a chance to go out there and see if they have a availability to, to make it there. Uh, it's a really great event. You won't go away disappointed for sure. So what are the other ways, and other than looking at your book, to sharp yourself and building an A-team and going and purchasing those things and maybe coming to, to see you at the World of Business Ideas event, what are the other ways in which they can learn more about what you're doing, your other speaking engagements, or maybe a blogs or websites? And of course, you mentioned your podcast as another opportunity. If you could share yeah, those things, that'd be I great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are two really easy ways for us to get better acquainted. One is um, you can go to my website, WhitneyJohnson.com forward slash diagnostic and actually take the learning curve locator that we were talking about and see where you currently are on your learning curve. So that's one um, way for us to, you know, get get um, better acquainted. The second thing is that that you can listen to my podcast, as I mentioned earlier, that's also at my um, website, WhitneyJohnson.com. And I now have, I think I want to say around 60 episodes. Um, And so there are lots of um, really um, interesting people that I've had a chance to talk to. And I think you'll, as you're trying to think about your own journey of personal disruption, and I'm at the top of the curve, and what do I do next? Or how do I manage my team? There are lots of different episodes on there that, that can be very helpful to you as you're thinking through your own um, journey of personal disruption. Oh, that's awesome. So do you give a chance to provide any type of feedback to her at some point or how does that work? Yeah. So as soon as you take it, you'll, it'll tell you where you are in the curve. It's, it's, it's absolutely free. So you can just take it and see where you are. Oh, that's awesome. I encourage everybody then to go out there and check out the website and certainly take that and, and get the feedback. Again, appreciate your time and for you coming on and joining Scott and I on the podcast and uh, hope to have you again on in the future, if time permits. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. And I think everything that you just mentioned um, actually applies to both military, civilian listeners, everything. I mean, obviously, you're doing a lot for the civilians, but hopefully a lot of the military folks and veterans can see the benefits of what we've just described here in so many ways, both in their personal and professional life. So again, thank you. Look forward to having you again on the future. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Whitney. Thank you, Scott.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio.